I wish I had a mentor. I think anybody that wants to do building needs to find a great builder and just accept lower wages for a little while and become indispensable so that you know you can command higher wages just so that you can actually be with somebody that knows what they're doing. I learned most of what I did, I learned from fine home building. I mean, I literally would, every month I would get fine home building way before I ever built this this first house in Cape Cod. This is Professional Confessionals. We are joined today by builder Michael Robinson. Thank you so much for joining us. Take us back to high school, what you were thinking about pursuing at that time. In high school, I was an actor. That was my thing. And I I don't think I was quite sure I was going to become an actor at that point. That happened later in college where I decided I was going to be an actor. And yes, I am here a carpenter slash builder. So uh, obviously it didn't end up that way. But yes, in, in, in high school, it was all about acting. And, you know, history of art and, you know, the and history, U.S. history and everything else that I was, I was a student. I was a pretty good student too. Mm-hmm. So what did you study in college? College, I was a theater major and a, I went to Wesleyan University and they had a really great theater program at the time that I got sucked right into. And there was a, um, also a really great sociology department, which I also was, I was really, I really love sociology and I was a, I was a sociology major too, although boring, but I, I had to drop it at the last minute. So I ended up just being a, a theater major. Mm-hmm. And uh, as soon as I graduated from Wesleyan, I packed up my car and drove out to Los Angeles. Wow. Where I, where I made two really crappy straight to video movies and, uh, and did a couple of plays. So at what point did you make the shift into carpentry? Well, you know, one thing that every actor has to do, if you do stage, you have to kind of do carpentry. You have to be able to build sets. It is just a given that you're going to be part of a theater troupe that is going to, they're not going to have professional carpenters that come in because everybody's struggling. I also went for one year uh, graduate school and I worked in a conservatory into an acting conservatory and I worked in their set shop during the, um, you know, for money. Um, That was the way I was, you know, sort of paying some of my bills. So I was always doing a little bit of carpentry, a little bit of stage carpentry, not the same thing as building houses, but I knew what the tools were. From from Los Angeles, where I made these really crappy films, I moved to, to Chicago. And in Chicago, I also did, I did a bunch of television there and other stuff. So I was doing pretty well. However, I was feeling this kind of, you know, I was going on a lot of auditions for a lot of big television shows and stuff. And a lot of them were being cast in Los Angeles. And every time I would go into my agent's office and do a reading for a television show, she would send it off to Los Angeles and I would never hear anything again. And, you know, it was just like, it was, you know, lost. Every once in a while I get a call back, but it was just like, just gone, gone. So you were feeling pretty discouraged at that time. It was discouraging, but there was something about this work that I would do for these auditions that would just, they would just disappear into the ether. There was something about the, about it, the way it Mm. it just disappeared. And at the same time, I was working for this construction company, just trying to make money. 
And it says, as a carpenter, it was a gay and lesbian construction company. I explained to the guy I wasn't gay. He said, no problem. I don't care. It was called Stonewall Construction. And he was a great guy, great boss. And basically, my agent would call me saying, I have a, an audition for this big TV series that's coming up. And I'd hear her and I would look at this wall that was half built. And I would look, you know, think about this audition and think about this wall. And I was like, fuck this. I'm doing, I'm building the wall. I mean, there's something concrete. There's something that, you know, I mean, there's stuff that disappears into the ether. And then there's a poof, that's a concrete. So it sounds to me like the acting thing felt like a waste of time to you. At a certain point, it did feel like a waste of time. However, I was still kind of, I was still in the middle of this. um, I moved to New York at that point. A buddy of mine wanted me to renovate his apartment. And so that was kind of a transition. And then this big show that I was in that won a lot of awards was going to go on this touring thing to to Los Angeles. And it was going to be a big deal. And this was going to be the thing that was going to make careers happen. They called me. They said, are you in? And I was like, no. It was a strange little transition in my head. Can't quite figure out what it was, but I guess I had just fallen out of love with acting. So in any case, that's a long way of saying it was a slow transition. But when it happened, it was like no more. And I really don't think much about it anymore. It doesn't come back to me anymore. So you made the transition being in New York. You started by renovating a friend's apartment. It was a very wealthy friend who loved me from college. And he had me come in and renovate his huge, like 2,000 square foot New York City loft. And it was great because I had this tremendous budget, budgets that unfortunately people don't usually have. And I have not lost my champagne tastes, unfortunately, from, <laughs> from all, of my, all of my work in New York. You know, it's things that I can't necessarily pay for, but it still seems like it's like the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And also, I have to say, working for a gay construction company, that is also a lot of champagne tastes that mm-hmm. I was catering to, to men with no dependents, you know, and they love their home. So do you think that it gave you an incorrect idea about the field, that money was flowing and all the jobs would be like that one? Uh, yeah. Yeah, it did. Yeah, very good. Very good. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it did. After I did this, you know, my friend had a lot of other wealthy friends and he passed me on to his other wealthy friends. And so I was really working for a lot of very wealthy people. And then, you know, every once in a while, a buddy of mine would call me in. He worked for Martha Stewart Living Magazine. And I'd come in and we'd work on sets until like late, late, late at night. And that was all this disposable stuff, you know, just making these sets on 27th Street, supposed to be, you know, Greenwich, Connecticut, but it's, you know, a set somewhere. And it's just like, you know, it just it seemed that things were disposable. Was there a similarity between acting and building the sets? Because it sounds like they would evaporate too. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah, I never, I never really thought about it like that. Nah, yeah. The theater sets probably have more of a purpose in life than these, you know, Martha Stewart. I, I hate to sound judgmental about Martha Stewart. We love Martha Stewart, but yeah, I don't think those sets did very much for the world. So were there any key moments in your career that you feel lifted your skill level to another plane? 
Yeah. When I had to basically do the entire house by myself, we acquired, this is a, a speculative project. My sister and I had acquired, or she really acquired, she was a money person, had acquired a really dismal property in Cape Cod. And she said, let's do something with this thing. And basically I had to sit down and I had only done these little Actually, they're kind of like sets. I now that I'm thinking about it, New York City. You know, it's really all the stuff that you do in New York City is kind of disposable. You know, and when you're doing it, it's really the next person that moves into that apartment is going to rip all of this stuff out. All of the stuff that you're using is you're using these metal studs, which are super light and super easy just to crumble up and stick into a garbage can, you know. So you can just kind of, you know, all all this waste happens in, in New York City. So I had done this kind of, basically it was cosmetic carpentry. That's what it was. It was cosmetic carpentry for a lot of rich people giving them pretty bathrooms and pretty kitchens. And and so this was the first time that I actually had to build a structure with a roof on it. And I had to study up and I had to talk to a lot of people and I had to get some good people on my team. And, you know, it was the pressure was on and I just had to figure it out. If I didn't know how to do it, this was before the days of YouTube. I couldn't YouTube it. I had to, you know, talk to somebody, you know, do some research, the web, the internet did exist at this point, but still it was very slow. Definitely one of the times I had to kind of up up my game and actually get serious. Did you have a mentor at that point? Someone that you looked up to? Someone that you... I wish I had a mentor. Mm. You know, every, I think anybody that wants to do building needs to find a great builder and just accept lower wages for a little while and become indispensable so that you can become, you know, you can command higher wages and clean up and do it just so that you can actually be with somebody that knows what they're doing. Because that was my, I learned most of what I did. I learned from fine home building. I mean, I literally would every month I would get fine home building way before, way before I ever built this, this first house in Cape Cod. And I'd be reading these fine home building and I would say, oh crap, that's how you, that's how you build, that's how you frame a roof, you know? And, you know, and I kind of studied this stuff because actually it's, it's a lot of geometry and a lot of, it's a lot of stuff that my brain was not used to churning through because I wasn't in high school anymore. Really, that was my education. And I would have loved to have had like a Tom Patachek, you know, somebody like that, who is just like a super smart, super capable guy that I, you know, if I was an 18 year old kid, I would have loved to work with a guy like Tom Patachek for, you know, years and just like learn from somebody like that. And he's a local builder, right? He's He's a local builder. Yeah. He's a local builder that I have a lot of uh, respect for. He's a very, very smart guy. Yeah. At a certain point, I decided because I had kids and I needed to make some money, I decided I was going to hire myself out to other builders. And so I actually have built with other builders as the boss, you know, because I, so I was like a, I was a carpentry subcontractor basically. And that was my way of just sort of not having to be a boss for a little while. And it was very interesting working with these other contractors because you realize that you're not the only person who's flying by the seat of his pants. You know, it's like, oh, you know, I guess this is kind of the state of many people's businesses. 
you know, they are like saying, oh, shit, I forgot, the blah, 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 you know, it's like in, a lot of people are throwing their tools down, you know, and saying, and a lot of people are not, you know, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, foresight and preparation and making lists and, and I don't always do that and I pay for it. And it was interesting because these other people, they don't do it either and they pay for it. And, and I felt bad asking them to pay me, you know, sometimes I would feel bad because I, you know, I was not productive because of something that they had not seen through. And I'd be like, you know, I, you know, hmm, I don't know what to do. I, I don't want to charge you for my, you know, my, these hours, but by the same token, it was your oversights. I'm working on a historic building in Newburgh. It is a brick building with a brick facade and the brick needed tuck pointing. You know what tuck pointing is? It's when it's the mortar between the bricks is so bad and that's really what's holding the building up. So what you need to do is you need to scrape all the mortar out between all the bricks. And if it sounds laborious, it is. Repointing. Repointing. Yes. Tuck pointing, repointing. Exactly. Um, So, and then you need to get the mortar, this mortar into these little tiny cracks, these little tiny mortar. And okay. So, there was this one section of the building we decided to do. And fortunately, we did not do much other than that side of the building. And we, I went to the local supply house and they said they gave me the, the correct mortar for this purpose. And I was like, great, good. We took it back and we started pointing and great. And then a buddy of mine who works over on this side of the river, a great, great mason named Ken Perry, returned my phone call that I had called from, from a week ago. He, he's a busy guy. And he said, oh, you're, what, what kind of mortar are you using? And I said, the kind of mortar that they sold me at the supply house for this exact thing. And he said, oh, God, you know, this could be a real nightmare for you. You know, you might have to. So after all this, all of you, if you can imagine the a thousand little, literally a thousand little lines of tuck pointed, which is now super hard. It's concrete now, mm-hmm. you know, and he is telling me, I'll, I'll know tomorrow morning. He's telling me that I might have to redo, grind out all of it and redo all of it because there might be a moisture issue because of this kind of, this kind of thing. I know. I mean, talk about like little details that you just, you know, and, and I've been building for a long time. I never knew that there was such a thing as type O mortar. And I learned that Mm. sadly. So many pitfalls. Yeah. So many pitfalls. Yes. And if you're doing it, this is my own dime. If you're doing it on another person's dime and you can't charge them for it. If there was another client, I would not be able to charge them for that mistake and it would just be I'd just be eating thousands of dollars especially because it was also a union mason who actually started doing this work for me and he was the one that said yeah this is perfect this is great let's go what major obstacles aside from this kind of thing have you had to overcome within your field of carpentry or building the obstacles on a daily basis are interpersonal obstacles Mm. Because you're working in a very, oftentimes a very close kind of, not intimate, but there are a lot of personalities. There's a lot of you know, racism sometimes, sexism sometimes, uh, a lot of sexism. 
my big obstacle on a daily basis is getting people who actually care about working, is getting getting employees. I think everybody should be just like me, you know. And because when I was working for other people, and, and again, I went back into this just a couple of years ago. I enjoyed, even when I was, when I had a boss and I was not the boss, I enjoyed it. I was like, okay, we're going to get this stuff done. Oh, I'm going to make this look good. You know, I I put my pride into it. And Mm. a lot of people do not feel the pride about what they're doing. In in any field. I think that's true in any field. Yes. I think that's true in any field. So, I mean, that is like the biggest obstacle. And if you ask any builder, they're going to say like the biggest obstacle to their daily existence is their people, is finding people who can, who can actually work and get things done, you know, and not complain too much. So showing up, doing the work, caring about the quality of the work that they're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and caring about you, caring about about whether or not like you, you're going to make money because if, you know, they ultimately, if the boss isn't making money, their job is tenuous and it can be a nice kind of family operation, you know, right to keep it going, to to keep keep it going. Yeah, it can be really is. I think the idealistic view of what you're describing in my head is, you know, the team gets together. Yeah. Meet in the morning, have a you know a few minutes to talk. You have your coffee, yeah. and then you dive in, and you're all working together, yeah. and, and you're you're making jokes, and you're having yeah. a great time yeah. doing it. And, and oftentimes, oftentimes it's like that. And also the obstacle, the obstacles are that people don't have enough money to do, you know, what really should be done. What's really called for for What's the job really to be done properly, for. and and you know I've been I've been on the other end of that. I've been you know uh, you know clients to. Uh, I'm trying to think of when I was a, somebody else's you know client, and I, they were well right right now actually all my subcontractors. I mean I'm basically I am doing this is this thing in Newburgh. This is my my project. So really, when somebody comes in and gives me a huge number on, and I go like, whoa, I can't pay that much, you know, and I know. From my own experience, I was never the lowest bidder. I was always right in the middle. So I should not be going with the lowest bidders. I should know this. But yet when it comes to, you know, dollars and cents, oftentimes you just sort of go like, no, 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 this, you know, I don't have enough money for you. You're a good guy. You're probably a really good whatever plumber, but I got to go with this other guy. The other uh, thing which I haven't uh, mentioned is like I consider myself a a passive house builder now. The thing in Newburgh that I'm doing right now is going to be a passive house. I'm going to be doing another passive house back out in Cape Cod again right after the Newburgh thing is done. I won't go into the whole spiel about passive house. It's boring, but... but well, give us a little bit of it, please. What it is, uh, passive house is a, is a metric. It's literally just a, a measurement of how much energy a building uses. And it's a very, very extremely low amount of energy that when you're building a passive house you can design this building to use. Ultimately, it's about a 90% reduction in what most buildings will consume. And it's not just about green and saving the environment, although that is the reason ultimately that I'm doing it, but it's also because people actually enjoy living in passive houses 
much more. It's a much more comfortable environment. It's it's a much healthier environment because you're getting filtered air 24-7. You are breathing filtered air. And you can get out of the shower buck naked, stand right by the window, show your neighbors, you know, what you got right there in front of the window and you on a 20 degree day and you will not feel cold because the house is so airtight and the windows are so good. In theory, you can be able, you can do this with maybe a 10% premium. In other words, if you, the exact same house that you take, that you make into a passive house, in theory should cost about 10% more because people oftentimes choose very, very complicated houses. Sometimes that cost is kind of amplified a little bit. I drank the the uh, passive house Kool Aid about about ten years ago, and then I I just studied it, and I've been certified several times over. The way they came to this, the metric that I was speaking of is four hundred and seven. This will mean nothing to you, but four hundred and seventy five BTUs per square foot per year. So whatever your house is, you are allowed for every square foot of that house, you're allowed 475 BTUs. Which is a measurement of energy. A measurement of energy. Um, and basically, if I'm, I, I hope I am not incorrect here, but I'm almost sure that they basically came to this by taking the number of people in the world, taking, you know, taking into account the resources, taking into account, and basically divvying things up and saying like, this is what you should be allotted in order to, you know, for us all to be living on the earth together. And if that's not the way they did it, then I, I like it. And I'm going to say it is the way they did it. <laughs> so, but how, so how does that compare? How does that number compare to like a standard non-passive house? What's the BTU there? It would be literally 10 times that. And a normal standard built house, if you're in an old house like this, it could be like way more than that. It could be like, you could be 15, 20 Don't times call me more. Out. I'm sorry. <laughs> It's a, it's a, be- I love your house. It's a beautiful house. For 10% more, it doesn't sound like much of a premium if you can, if oh. you can achieve that. No, well, in my, in, in my place in Newburgh, I am going to end up spending netting about 20, like $2,000 on a solar array. Okay. Which will power this house. It'll power it, the heating, the cooling, the hot water. The plug loads, hair dryers, toaster ovens, the cooking, everything, basically everything. There's no gas, there's no uh, oil in this place. It's all electric, and it'll all be powered by these solar panels. So for $22,000, I, I have to check that. It might be more like $26,000. But that like one-time kind of payment, I am basically paying for the energy for three families plus common spaces for 25 years, 30 years, as long as those solar panels last, and they'll last a very long time. So it's kind of crazy. Once you make your envelope really, really tight, and you and once you add a little bit extra insulation, and once you sort of take these things into account, then suddenly, you know, you can get a lot out of, out of solar. Special appliances, super efficient, everything? Yeah, everything. is. It has to just be Energy Star. It's nothing super, super special. I'm just going to be going to Sears and getting a Sears Kenmore 
refrigerator, you know, or, you know, something of the like, GE, something. But yes, I'm going to be definitely looking at the energy, the energy needs of the, of, of the appliances. I'm not going to be getting energy hogs for sure. So that's the kind of thing that, you know, titillates me about the whole thing that you can actually buy just like putting a little extra into that envelope. You can actually just suddenly be free of fossil fuel, you know? Yeah. So your profession includes helping to save the earth. It does. It does. Yep. Even when I was not a passive house person, like when I was, I did a, a development in, in Harlem years and years and years ago, my people said then, they were like, oh my God, I can't believe how well insulated this place is. You know, back then I did radiant floor heating. If you have to use a fossil fuel heating delivery, that's really uh, the best way to do it. It's actually the most efficient way of doing it. But it still is like if I could take away all of the radiant floor tubing I did in my entire career and put it back into the extra insulation and better windows, I would do it in a second because it's, there's still a boiler burning oil or gas that is feeding that radiant floor system, you know. But yeah, I would do radiant floor systems and it was all very low energy at the time, but still it was not nearly what I could have been doing or should have been doing. But I didn't know. When you say passive, I guess the ultimate is off the grid and totally, you know, self-sufficient. There's a U.S. passive house now and there's a European passive house. So I'm going to talk about the European passive house just because it's easier. It's purely, does your house require less than 475 BTUs. And you can actually model this, and you do model this a great deal. You do commission the houses to make sure that they are performing and that the systems, you know, are performing. So the Um, energy source is independent. It could be 475 BTUs and you still buy conventional power source? Yeah, 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 it could be. Absolutely. A lot a lot of passive houses are run on oil and gas. And one of my teachers said, you can build one of these things out of nuclear waste, but if it, you know, meets these criteria, then it's a passive house. Passive is all about just getting that envelope where it needs to be. The net zero is another thing. So you're doing the passive now, and yep. it sounds like you're really passionate about it. And is is that what brings you a lot of your fulfillment these days? Yes. Yes, that is. That is. I would feel like I am not doing my job if I was not building to these standards right now. And that's unfortunate because this is where we get back to people's money in people's pocketbooks is a lot of people say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I don't have money for that. I've heard all about that passive house. Yeah. Those windows cost twice as much as the windows I can get down at, at Williams Lumber. And they're right. And you can make the argument to them. But if you go this route, you will be, you could be off the grid. The great thing about the U.S. standard is that when that house is done, you are basically just a solar array away from being net zero. In other words, your house is a passive house. It's a great house. It performs literally 10 times better than any of the houses on the block. And if you then put a solar array on your roof, it depends, of course, how big the roof is, blah, blah, blah. But in theory, then you are at net zero, which means that your house is basically producing more energy than it is consuming. 
And that's a great place to be. Anything that's built now that is not Passive House standard will be obsolete in about 10 years. That's just a fact, the way things are, are moving right now in terms of building codes. So why are we building something that's going to be obsolete in 10 years? I'd like to have one. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is there anything that surprised you about being a carpenter or builder? Any myths that you'd like to dispel or aspects of it that you'd like to change? Anything in under- Yeah, yeah, no. The, I think the biggest myth is that, you know, it's the same thing that lawyers have to deal with is that you're being, that you're, you're in it to con people and you're in it to like, you know, uh, when I send a little lackey, that's not a nice word, but to paint, you know, the door that you asked to have painted. And then I send you a bill for, you know, $150 and you say $150, it took him two hours or, you know, three hours to paint that thing. And you can't be paying him more than, you know, $15 an hour, $20 an hour, and you'd probably, you would be right. But there is always such, especially in the construction industry, there are such, the insurance, um, between all the, the, the liability insurance and the workers' comp insurance, and then there's a bunch of other insurances that you got to be having. And then if you, if their person is an employee, which they usually are, then you have to be paying all these other, you know, payroll taxes, payroll taxes, all the rest of it. So when, when all is said and done, that contractor is paying basically $2 for every $1 they're paying that, that employee. Normally it, it depends on the person. And then the contractor should be making some money. Otherwise he's just, you know, yeah, what are you doing it for? What are you doing it for? I mean, he's, he, it, you know, your, you know, it's your stable of guys. It's your, you know, he's probably using your paintbrushes and your, you know, whatever. And you probably drove him there. So, you know, there's all this other stuff. So there's this kind of, you know, knowing smile that people get when you, when you give them this, you know, what, what something's going to cost. And they go like, <laughs> ah, yeah, you're doing that contractor thing. You know, you're trying to screw me over. And, and it's, uh, in New York city, it was the worst. In New York city, it was the absolute worst. That's like the, the one big thing. Myths to dispel. One of the biggest things is that if you're dressed the way I am right now, is that you're a, you're a moron, you know, you're a dummy. I have a, a friend of mine who is an amazing cabinet maker. And it's not just me that says it. He is like, he works in some of the most amazing architects' houses around. He gets hired all over the place. We started together. He was my cabinet maker for 10 years when I was a general contractor in New York City. And, uh, and he now lives up in Maine. He's just a great guy, great, comp- great, great, great a cabinet maker. And we're also very, very close friends. We also look alike, everybody says, which is very strange. People used to mistake us all the time. They would, he used to stay with me when he came down to New York City. And whenever he walked in, our doorman would say, uh, hey, Michael, when it, as, he, as he walked by, because <laughs> some, some dude, some dusty guy with like brown hair and brown eyes walked by him. This friend of mine, Weber, whenever he did this, some installations, he would ask me, just because we don't hang out together anymore, if I would come down to the city and help him do an install for all, old times' sake, because we used to do it so much together. And it's always fun because, again, the stuff he do, he's doing is like really cool, like really cool, like way beyond my pay grade. 
to some of this stuff. So in any case, we were in a very famous architect's Tribeca loft that he had done the kitchen for and this really cool staircase for and stuff. And this loft, it only had one elevator. Usually a lot of New York City places have have service elevators and a lot of them, and many do not. And this was one place that did not. So basically you had to share this elevator with the, with the, uh, the residents. As a, an aside, Weber was an English major at UVM. He's a cabinet maker, but he is very well read very, very intelligent. I am a contractor. I went to Wesleyan University. I, you know, so as we were moving this stuff in, in this really harried, crazy way, because again, we're competing with the residents and we have to make, you know, we have to let them have priority because we're just the working guys. So we're doing this installation, merrily, you know, talking exactly like what you were just saying. We're just happily talking about stuff and working. And some, some guy, bursts into, doesn't knock, bursts into the apartment. because who's in charge here? I said, um, well, uh, that would be Weber. Can I, can I help you out? And he goes, and he, goes, and he walks up to, to my friend and goes, come here, come here. And he, he all but grabbed Weber by the scruff of the neck. And he didn't, but he was just like, come here, come here. And he dragged us over to the service elevator where he showed us, lo and behold, a little tiny bit of, I guess it was a piece of a, a cabinet had like scuffed it and it was, it was a white cabinet. So there was some like white scuff mark on that. He goes, what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about this? Weber said, uh, well, um, I'm, I'm real sorry. Well, don't worry. We'll, we'll take care because you got to take care of this. You got to take care. And he, he was like talking to us like we were little children. And it was because we were, you know, it, it was mm. really, really awful. So we cleaned it up, whatever. Then I get uh, a forwarded email from this very famous architect saying, I was told by the, uh, the president of the co-op uh, board that you were extremely rude. This is saying to whoever, you were extremely rude to him. Not only did he, you know, treat us like we were slaves, but then he went and reported us like that we were being somehow like subversive and rude to him. It was really, really awful. And I actually, you know, Weber said, don't do anything. And he, I wrote to that. Fortunately, I had that famous architect's email address there because he had, he had forwarded it to me. And I wrote her a long email saying like, you know, you have nothing but a respectful person. And furthermore, he's a well-read literature major from UVM. So, you know, and because he was, he had a lot of big work with, with her and that almost, she basically said, um, you know, we, we have to rethink in that letter, we have to rethink these jobs, the, the rest of these jobs. And I was like, oh my wow. God. So yes, long way of saying that that is one of the biggest things is people just look at you and they look at your clothing and they just assume, and you know, a lot of times they're right. And let's face it, I mean, you know, everybody should be treated, you know, no matter what their education. I'm, I'm being very elitist by saying, you know, I was, you know, Wesleyan, you know, I got a guy that works for me right now who does not speak the King's English at all. You know, he was born and bred in Brooklyn and he's been living in Poughkeepsie and he did not make it through high school. You know, he is a sweet guy and you have to talk to people like they're intelligent yeah, so, well, yeah. everyone deserves to be treated like a person. Yes, but there is something about being dirty that 
invites. Although by the same token, I did, I was hiring these guys out of the Bronx years ago when I was working in Harlem and uh, they were getting ready to go home. And I said, do you want to like wash up or something? I have a hose. Do you want to wash up? He goes, no, no, I don't want to wash. I got, I need to keep this dirt on me because, and I was like, when chicks see you on the, on the subway and you're, and you're dirty, that means you're working. So like, uh, <laughs> so, you know, so that was sort of like, you know, dirt in, I guess in some, in some parts of society, you know, being dirty is like, means that you're a working man and you got some money in your pocket that can spend on, on the, on the women. Prove you're not a, a, a layabout. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Would you like to share proudest moments or biggest disappointments within your career? One of the proudest moments was taking my son up to the roof where I had to be doing some work. And first of all, I was proud of him because he was not scared of getting up on the roof where a lot of kids are. I even, I used to be scared. But like seeing him working and getting some kind of satisfaction, he's 15 years old, um, seeing him getting some satisfaction out of like the... uh, it was just simple work. He doesn't have any skills. But, you know, I had a dad who was a doctor. It was very easy for me to be proud of my father. And he did this great research and he was well, you know, and I would see his name everywhere. And, uh, you know, it's very easy to be proud of that kind of thing. To see my son kind of understanding the pride that you can take in just doing some, in his case, simple jobs and getting them done well. It does underscore my own pride and my own work that he sees as as being something to be proud of. You know, I think my proudest moment really was getting a letter from these two men who bought my house uh, my sister's in that my house in Truro, Massachusetts, in Cape Cod. After that was the first house that I built that I was talking about before. And this letter showed such appreciation for some of those little details that I had worked on very, very hard. And when they said they look forward to their grandchildren and their nieces and their nephews being able to enjoy this house, you know, and the guests and stuff, that it was a, it was a beautiful, beautiful letter that I will always remember. That must have been a really good feeling, knowing that they were thinking of the longevity of what you had built and, and that for generations yeah. it would be... yeah. Lived in and appreciated. And it also underscores there's an artistic nature to what you're doing. It's not just utilitarian building, you know, slapping together a box for people to live in. That's true. I think that is one of the things that sets me apart from other builders. Knowing what you know now, is there anything that you would have done differently? Oh, God, yes. Would have studied much harder in geometry. That is something that kicks me in my butt all the time. Geometry is so useful in so many ways. Honestly, I wouldn't have spent so much time acting. I kind of wish, you know, we were talking earlier about how how kids are on kind of this direction, you know, early on. 
And that's, you know, it's too bad that kids have to feel like they're in a direction, like they're on this kind of, uh, what's again, simple word when you're under in a, in a, a track, a track. But by the same token, you know, I was kind of holding on and drifting with this acting, you know, for longer than I, than I wish I had. I wish I had sort of like knuckled down. There is something about getting out there and becoming a businessman, being able to tell people, which is another thing that I regret, being able to just tell somebody what they owe you, like being able to like sort of just talk turkey, talk business, not feel like you have to be a nice guy, not feel like you have to be like the cool, like, you know, I was like the cool contractor, you know, young, hip kind of contractor. I got a lot of jobs because I was young and hip. And like, I got railroaded by people because I didn't have a strong contract. I didn't want to really enforce a contract that I did have because, you know, it would cause all kinds of, I just, you know, there's a business-like way that you can walk through this planet of just saying, this is what I'm worth and here's your bill. Please pay me. And when the person says, well, blah, 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 just being able to say, okay, I hear you. But this is the work I did, and this is the hours I spent, and this is so-and-so, and this is what you owe me as per our contract right here. I was always afraid to be businesslike, always afraid to like do business. And I think I... Afraid or just you preferred the other way? You wanted to be a nice guy. I mean, you seem like a very nice person who wants to continue that in all aspects of their life. Yeah, yeah, well, I think I think it is a question of I think it is a question of being afraid of not being liked. I do think that there's a, you know, oh, they're not going to like me. I think that is that's a lot of it. But I mean, that's it. You can't always be liked. It's a lesson you you have to learn, and I think a lot of people have a hard time hard time learning it. You know, I think it is like a big lesson that people have a hard time learning. It seems like to accept being that way, you have to give up a certain amount of idealism about the world when you do it. Huh. I mean, I know for me it was. Yeah. The idealism is that we assume that we're all partners in, in this and that if I, you know, if I help you, you are going to, you know, remunerate me. And you're going to recognize my hard work. And therefore, you're going to whip out <laughs> that checkbook. And and that is not the way clients, customers are. Even the very nice ones are not like that. I am. <laughs> I am like that because I know. I, I, my subs are so... I do anything just to make sure that they get paid, you know, so they can pay their guys and just so that... And that they know that this is... That they're respected and that they're not... That I understand what they are dealing with. You know, some subs I'm kind of sorry I did that with and, you know, but... Yeah. You're a very honorable person, I must say. Well, that's all I ever wanted, right? So yeah. you, you mentioned your son earlier, and he was proud of the small job that he did. Yeah. Is this a profession that you would like to see him go into? Uh, no, not necessarily. Well, yeah, I would love to see him go into it if he wanted to. But I think that... um he is more of a more of a man of letters. Although, you know, who knows? One of the reasons I'm having him on the construction site is because I do believe 
I do believe that being on a construction site builds common sense that people do not have otherwise. I, and I can't quite explain it. There's something about like, I better not prop that thing up there like that because it could fall down and hit somebody or even hit me. It's something about safety. There's something about the sequence of things. That's also like, I have to do this in order to do this and this and this. And seeing like the sort of the, just the common sense of the A, B, C, D, because that's really is, you, there are concrete steps, sometimes really concrete steps that you have to take in order to do what you're doing. I really think that builds a sense of common sense that I certainly did not have when I was a kid. You know, I did some really stupid things in my first construct stonewall construction. I did some stupid ass things, stupid things like that. I still I still look back on some of those things and say, like, how could I possibly have done that? So I try to cut people slack when they screw up on my job site. I definitely do. Any advice to someone who's wanting to pursue a similar path? Yes. My advice to anyone that wants to do this is several things. Oftentimes, kids that go into this are kids of parents who have similar jobs like in the trades. There's a lot of ignorance that is passed down from one generation to another. Those fine home building magazines that I was reading all the time, on the one hand, I wish I had an actual mentor. But on the other hand, I was actually reading the way people are doing these things now, not the way things were being done in the 60s and 70s. And there's some really big differences. There's some really big time savers. I mean, things that, you know, I have a construction calculator. I know an old guy said, I'll never use one of those things. And I was like, really? Uh, watch me calculate this rafter right now for you. And, you know, some guys, some old codgers will do it as quick as a calculator for sure. But, you know, I'm not just talking about calculator. I'm just talking about I kept up on the products that were coming out, how people were waterproofing bathrooms, that, that people were waterproofing bathrooms. Nobody still waterproofs bathrooms when they when they really should be because eventually that water gets into your into your walls and so yeah my first uh, my first bit of uh, advice is to pick up a fine home building and uh, read it and then continue to read it and just look at what people out there are actually doing nowadays see what the cutting edge is and you can always do your traditional stuff. But see where the cutting edge is. And the other bit of advice actually would be to, at the same time, try to you know find a, a builder who has a great reputation. Unfortunately, builders always have, everybody's got a different opinion about different people. People we know and love are both loved and mistrusted by, by different parts of our community. But, you know, you need to find somebody that is cool and seems knowledgeable and hopefully that seems like they actually do what I have not been doing recently 
does look ahead and does have a way of actually really planning out the jobs and that isn't always running around like a chicken with his head cut off as most contractors are, you know, just trying to, you know, catch up with themselves. Putting out fires. Putting out fires all the time. Is there anything that you've always wanted to do that you haven't yet within the field of carpentry and building? I'm doing it. I'm doing it right now. It's not a done deal yet. When I was in the midst of the futile couples counseling that I was in, this uh, counselor asked me, you know, you're doing these odd jobs and what do you want to do? What, what's your fantasy? And it was funny because wanting to be a, an actor, is that's an easy fantasy. I mean, you know, yeah, I want to be a friggin' film star. I want to be Robert De Niro. It's a different... I was transitioning from that kind of fantasy. And when she asked me this, I had no idea. Like, I really... My brain was reeling. And I was like, wow, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And I'm friggin' 52, you know? And I'm doing bathrooms and kitchens for people around the, around town. Like, what, what am I going to... And that's when I realized, like, oh, you know what? I want to build low-income, low-moderate-income housing, you know, passive house. And that is, you know, that became, like, my my passion. And so what I'm hoping happens is that I'm able to finish this. I'm hoping that I have a good reputation in the city with the city of Newburgh, that the city of Newburgh comes up, and that people, in fact, you know, do start moving there, and that the, you know, that it becomes more of a of an obvious investment for an investor, and then I can take some money from from some investor because I will have absolutely none of my own to actually develop the other properties to the same thing to low moderate income housing, passive housing. And this would be new construction, so it would be um, a much simpler and cheaper thing to do than what I'm doing right now. It's a renovation, which is just a pain in the ass. That really is my fantasy, and I'm doing it. Excellent. That's great. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael. This Thank has been you. enlightening. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you. It's really been an honor. Thanks for listening. To hear more and subscribe, visit our website, professionalconfessionals.com. You can find Professional Confessionals on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.